So every once in a while, every now and again, uh, the, the book that is entitled Webster's Dictionary proves to be interesting. Uh, I, I, I don't claim for one second to, to read it often. Um, any of you? Any of you strong readers of, okay, and the, the daily email doesn't count. I mean, you actually get the real thing out. Um, so I was looking up one word in particular, and uh, I want to share that word with you now because it's really, really interesting, its definition. Uh, coming out of last week, remember this? I was talking about the posters that um, all the 90s were encapsulated by. The word discipline. So I looked it up, and I was insanely flabbergasted by one word that consistently shows up in all five definitions of the word discipline. Okay, so I want to, I in a moment of interaction now, I want you to try to guess the one word that is in all, don't look it up on your phone, okay? Don't look up on your phone. Any guesses on what word it was? What's that? The disciple? Disciple, okay, interesting guess. Not that word. Any others? Obedience, also a phenomenal vocabulary word. Not it, okay. What's that? Dedication, brilliant, but not the word. Um, what's that? Habit, close, close. The word that is in every single definition of discipline is this, training. It sure doesn't feel like it though sometimes, right? Right? Like a couple days ago, okay, we don't spare the rod in my home, all right? Um, a couple days ago, my son Dawson uh, finds himself in need of some disciplining. And, uh, and so as we do in my house, I, I take him uh, to a place where him and I can spend some father and son time, okay? And uh, I... I share with him why he's been disobedient, and more specifically, why he has sinned. I then tell him that the consequences of uh, sin are real, and son, you know in our home that the consequence of this particular infraction is a spanking, okay? Now, there has never been, never, never, one time, okay, as I am spanking my son, right, that he turns around in his pain and says, Daddy, thank you so much for the training, you know. Like, Daddy, you are training me well, right? Daddy, in fact, could you give me another because the training feels so lovely, right? No, like, he, he's never, ever, ever said that, okay? Now, now on, the, on the parental side of things, I can look back and I, I can say, like, uh, like, I'm really thankful to have grown up in a, in a home that embraced discipline, that didn't let me just run and do all of my own things, right? Like uh, some of you guys have gotten very self-disciplined in training for a half marathon or some sort of competition, right? And rarely if ever, okay, and I'll just speak for myself, never, never in the training of a half marathon did I ever like thank the Lord for training, you know what I'm saying? I, God, thank you that I have to run these nine miserable miles, right? Like, I never thanked him for it. I think that that mentality has permeated the church when you use those two words together, church discipline. Uh, rarely do I see articles or teachings uh, where, where people have thanked the church for disciplining 
Uh, Rarely do I see proper and right biblical understanding of church discipline. But our dear friends in Corinth have created a mess. And uh, tonight, thankfully, we get to watch not just the classic Matthew 18 approach to church discipline, but my friends, we get to watch Paul take on church discipline with like complete, complete, full, going for it, put on your seatbelt kind of style. And so if you've never understood what church discipline is, if you're walking in here uh, and, and confused on the issue, I'm telling you what, we are about to go on an amazing ride through the text. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is going to be a crazy night, okay? Uh, I'm actually going to read the whole chapter. We're going to study the whole chapter tonight, right? There's a slight chance you'll be out before 10, but give me grace. We have a lot to work through. Unlike many nights, I actually, I want to read this whole chapter in its entirety because it's going to set up the framework of understanding as we walk through it verse by verse, which is our way of studying here. So 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, are you guys all there? Okay. The subtitle, Sexual Immorality Defiles the Church, but not just any kind of sexual immorality. You ready? Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. Incest. Are you you arrogant, he says in verse 2. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as of present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, he says in verse 4, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Have you ever read that before? That's interesting, isn't it? You're to deliver this man to Satan, like a pizza delivery it kind of gives reference to. This is strange language. For, he says, the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you, uh, as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And finally, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, okay? For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Finally, verse 13, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. A really lighthearted, easy text to study, (laughs) right? And, and I know, I know, I know, right? In your personal study of God's word, this is like, this is day number one, right? I mean, you, you can't wait to get to 1 Corinthians 5, right? Leaving here, some of you already are, I can't wait to study this with my disciple, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, 
as is typical in God's word, which starts out as a little bit weird and odd and confusing, all of a sudden becomes beautiful. Okay, here we go, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality. Porneia. Porneia is the Greek word. Does that, does that sound familiar? Okay, it's where we get the word pornography. Okay, now sexual immorality in the, in the Bible, in the text, means any kind of sex that happens outside of the biblical covenant of marriage. Okay, now that takes all kinds of veins, but particularly in Corinth, there is a, a kind of sexual immorality that's happening. He says, and it's of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. This kind of sexual immorality, even the pagans think is ridiculous. Now you've hit an all-time all low, haven't you? Like if the pagans are looking inside the church and saying, I can't believe that they're doing that. Like that, that's, pretty, that's pretty intense. That, now you know you're doing some sinning, right? Okay. Here's the description. For a man has his father's wife. Now, there's all kinds of questions about uh, how exactly this is played out. Okay, Has the father passed away and the son stepped in to marry his stepmother? Is dad still living and they had some sort of affair? We're not sure. Either way, in Roman law, incest, incest, in Roman law, was abolished. In the Old Testament, incest led you to death. Okay. And what Paul is saying is, in uh, Corinth, we have uh, two problems. Okay. Uh, the first problem is the clear sexual immorality that is present. The second problem is that the church is not doing anything about it. The church is, is allowing it to happen. And there's some key words in verse 1. Check this out. Look at this. For a man at the end has his father's wife. The word has implies he has not repented. So his sin of incest, consistent sexual morality, is not being repented of. And apparently it's blatant enough, obvious enough, out in the light enough, that not just has the church in Corinth become accepting of this, or we could say tolerant of it, but Paul's even found out about it. And those of you guys that know, okay, Paul is not writing 1 Corinthians from like a coffee shop in Corinth, okay? He's, he's writing back to them. We have two problems, okay? Consistent, unrepentant sin. The second, the church is allowing it. So my question is, why in the world would the church allow unrepentant sin let's bring it a little bit closer to home why in the world would we ever or any church in and of our community allow unrepentant sin well I think there's a lot of fears three of them specifically next slide uh, I think first of all it's a fear of the process look um, as you're going to see tonight Calling to the table with the word that we studied last week with a, a heart of admonishment, warning, gentle warning. Okay? The process of, of walking with someone in their sin is lengthy, difficult, takes every facet of you, is hard and painful. Okay, I, I have never in my life, though the outcome has generally been phenomenal, I have never gone into a situation where I'm getting ready to challenge a brother or sister in their sin or have been challenged myself, and like I couldn't wait for the conversation. I like woke up in the morning, this is going to be the best day of my life. Like I never thought that. Now often afterwards, I, 
I thanked God because I got to see his work yet again. I got to watch the spirit move in people and move in my heart as we were drawn to repentance, right? But the process is lengthy, and I think we fear that. And if we get into this, what, like, what are we going to unfold? What are we going to uncover? Is it going to be just this unrepentant sin or more unrepentant sin? I think we fear that. I think we fear the perception. Come on. Man, if, listen, if you, go to the, man, if you go to that church, woo, and you want to do some sinning, nope, it's not going to go on there, right? The, the perception, listen, the perception that those people are judgmental. The perception that, ju- that those people don't love and care. Uh, the perception that you can't be real there. Because if you are, then you're going to be brought underneath some sort of church discipline. We're going to explain all that tonight. But do you see why people fear this? It's often irrational fear, but do you see why they fear it? And lastly, publicity. I'm not talking about News Channel 5 coming up in here, okay? But I'm talking about the publicity that happens on Facebook. Listen, some of you have written posts on Instagram, Facebook, Instachat, whatever those things are called, right? What's the other one? What's the, like, the, the Snapchatter, okay? Like, all those things. You have written posts that are blatantly obvious to your situation and are completely condemning to all those around you. But you've done so in, like, an innocent way, so it doesn't seem like it. And so then what does it create? It creates a fear in the body that, oh, my goodness, like, we better... We better not challenge or, 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 you know, go up because, man, they're going to, like, make some posts and they're going to defame us and take our name down to the grave. with Like, whatever the case may be, we fear these things. Uh, I think uh, all of us, just like my son getting a whooping, uh, we fear that it's not going to help us. We fear that discipline will actually um, bring hatred. And for some of us, that's been our experience. But But let's look at this with a slightly different angle. Paul obviously is not okay with this. Paul obviously is not fearful. Paul obviously is saying, look, there's incest being allowed in the church, and it's time to do something about it. So strap on your seatbelt. Verse 2, he says, and you are arrogant. Now, we can take this a lot of different ways. What I believe is happening is the church in Corinth Remember, what are they after in Corinth? What are they after? Come on. What are they after? Come on. Wisdom, right? Knowledge, progress. Like, this is what the church in Corinth, this is the kind of culture they existed in. So what I think is happening in Corinth is they're allowing this ancestral relationship to happen in the body of Christ. They're tolerating it, while all the while boasting about their righteousness, boasting about their wisdom. Hey, world, look at us. We know all of these passages, and yes, I know that there's this ancestral relationship going on, but listen, you need to look past that and look at our brilliant understanding of the Scripture. When anyone who has any understanding would say, there's a problem, okay, you can't claim an understanding of the Scripture and then turn your eye away from unrepentant sin in the body, and that's what Paul's contending. You're arrogant. You're arrogant. He says, ought you not rather to mourn? Shouldn't sin do something in you and the body that causes the hurt of it and the anguish of it? 
to drive you, not just to repentance corporately, but also to address this with humility. Because any kind of church discipline that will be done in arrogance will create a community of hatred and not that of love and grace. He says, you're arrogant. Wouldn't you not rather mourn? Look at this. Then he says, let him who has done this been removed from among you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, guys, this is tricky, dicey territory. Let him be removed. Mark, Paul is saying excommunicate him. Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. To an unrepentant, challenged, gone against sinner in the body of Christ. Now, this isn't the only place that talks about the issue of excommunication. The other famous text, this being the second, is in Matthew 18. Here's what Matthew 18 says, okay? Here's the red letters. If your brother sins against you, says Jesus, first go and tell him his fault. Does it say anyone else with you? Come on, does it say anyone else? No, it says you. You go and tell him his fault. First of all, let's just embrace this as a community right now, okay? We could like camp out on verse 15 and just call it a night. Your brother sins against you. You, you pursue that brother or sister and you tell them why and how they've sinned against you. You do not first go and seek wise counsel from all of your friends, right? You do not go and share your prayer requests with everybody, okay? Okay, there are no exceptions to this. You go to your brother or your sister and you give them the amazing opportunity to repent. And haven't those who have done that cherished so many of those moments? Again, many of which I wasn't excited about, but I left there. I left there seeing yet again the power of God in not just the person hearing how they had wronged me or sinned against me, but also driving repentance and relational reconciliation. And when that happens, isn't it beautiful? So first he says, do that, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, look at this, you've gained your brother, right? Your brother has repented. He's turned back. He's, he's, and just so we're all understanding what repentance is, it's stopping in the tracks of your sin and turning around and headed back towards the Lord. Okay, you've gained back your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Where the church has gotten this wrong is, all right, I see, I see your unrepentance. Now I'm getting my posse. Everybody who sees it my way, everyone who's, who agrees with me, everyone who doesn't care about you, now we're coming. That's what Matthew 18 says. Whoa, 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 whoa. What is the word there? So that they may be what? Two or three what? Come on. Witnesses. When I have seen this go incredibly well, it's when brothers and sisters who have demonstrated consistent humility and a fruit of prayer in their life, when they come along in the situation, not to, uh, not to be a posse or a group that teams up against, but to be brothers and sisters who collectively love those who, are they're, who they're making a charge against. It's beautiful. Now what happens if this doesn't work? Well, here we go. Next slide. Okay, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Hello. Tell it to the church. Bring it publicly. And all of you are thinking awkward.com, right? Like, I, 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 what do you mean? 
how, how would we address this? Well, thankfully, thankfully, in our body, we have not had to get to this place yet. We haven't had to get to this place because much of what happens in the first two steps of the process is repentance. And both in this text and in the text in Corinthians, if the believer is unrepentant and desirous of staying in the body, that's when the church needs to get involved publicly. There have been a situation or two here in our history of 10 years where we've gone through the first two steps of the process in a loving, gracious, merciful way, and at that point, the person has said, I don't want anything to do with any of you. You obviously don't care, you obviously don't love, when the whole reason why we were there is because we loved and cared. Okay. So if, if that doesn't happen, if they're unrepentant, wanting to stay in the body of Christ, then you bring that before the church. And look, if he refuses to listen even to the church, what? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Those, in this case, aren't a good thing. Okay? I know if you, any of you work for the IRS now, don't like see this. Like, I'm sure you're a great individual, but in this case, okay, in this case, they, they were seen as outsiders. Now, just for fun, can I show you how this text in? Just for fun. This is crazy. Check this out. Okay, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Have you ever heard that before? What's the context? Discipline. Let's keep going. This is going to blow your context mind. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Here we go. Verse 20. You guys ready? One of the most misquoted texts in the scripture. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. What's the context? It's not a worship gathering. It's discipline. Where two or three as witnesses in love and grace are approaching a brother or sister in Christ, what does Jesus say? There I am with you. Are you guys seeing this with me? In other words, take heart, have courage. I know it's tough, I know the process is long, I know it's lengthy, I know it's heart-wrenching, I know you, you risk relationship, and I know there's opportunities where you could walk away and where that person can make a public defaming of your name, but know this, I'm with you. Know this, I'm with you. So every worship gathering that's ever said, hey, where two or three are gathered, yeah, that's true, and, and if we want to get logistic about it, that, that certainly is true. But the context here is... Discipline. Paul says, remove them. See to it that this unrepentant sinner is not allowed to stay in the body. Agreeing with Matthew 18. And then we see this interesting verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced, look at this, what does he say? Judgment. On the one who did such a thing. Whoa, 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 whoa. He's not there. He's somewhere else. His spirit's present somehow. And he's pronounced judgment. Um, is anyone else seeing the same problem I am? We talked like two weeks ago on not judging people. Because we were quoting Paul. Okay? Cue the text. Here it was. Look at this. Remember this. Okay? Therefore, do not pronounce judgment. Right? Like... 
Right? And some of you are super pumped right now. You're like, see, I told you the Bible has contradictions. Right? I told you. Here's my proof text, Mark. You're like proving it for me. Hold on. Hold on. Slow your roll. Okay? Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is what we studied a couple weeks ago. Let me show you two more texts. Okay? Next slide. Check this out in the red letters. Judge not that you not be judged. All right, that's pretty clear, okay? Thank you, Jesus, right? Like, that's a solid text. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Many of you guys know this, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Why would you judge someone else when you got a log right up in there, okay? Next slide. This one provides some help. Also in the red letters. Do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. Is anyone else thoroughly confused? Right. Okay. Now, I didn't intend to, like, get into this particular study, but I found myself at this point in the study a little bit, you know, a little bit over overwhelmed. Judge, do not judge, don't be judging, but then judge, don't judge, like, right? So I stepped back from this, and I would encourage you, uh, those of you guys in your personal time just to, like, watch how this study unfolds, particularly in the New Testament. But what I can say, uh, after seeing all these texts play out, is that in each one of these situations, it is very localized, it is very specific, and each of these contexts, even the ones that we've just looked at here, in fact, this last one, uh, Jesus is talking about the people uh, saying, uh, like, these people want to kill him, Okay. And so he's like, hey, well, like, he says a few verses before this, well, like, why do you want to kill me, right? And then he says this, each individual situation has a different context, a different understanding. There's several different ways that judging and judgment plays out. In our particular context tonight, it's calling an apple an apple in the church. It's not throwing a gavel on someone's soul because that is reserved for, as Paul said, who? Like, God alone. But what it is doing is saying, you're in an incestuous relationship. That's true. And, and so, in some ways, that's judgment. Do you guys all understand? Okay? It's like calling a seventh grader a seventh grader, you know? You, you are a seventh grader. Yes, I am. Okay, like... You stand judged, right? Seventh grader, okay? So in our context tonight, that, that's the principle, okay? In several other contexts, including the one we studied a couple weeks ago, we are freed from the judgment of people before the time because God is the one who judges. So I encourage you on your own time to do a study of that. But Paul says, look, I'm not there. But I don't have to be there to know what's going on. There's an incestuous relationship that is not good. And so here's what you're to do in verse 4. Hello, this is intense. When you are, what's the word? Assembled. All right, this is, it's time to bring it to the church. When you're assembled. Nothing fun about this. Uh, This isn't, you know, the the band's not going to play like, you know, camp down races or something like that. Like as this is happening, okay. It's going to be hard, but the body has to have it. The body has to see it. The body has to experience it. For what purpose? Training? 
growth, sanctification. Okay? When you are assembled, what? In the name of the Lord Jesus. That's a huge piece that many who have done, uh, done church discipline wrong have missed. Church discipline has been done incorrectly over and over and over. And it's put a bad taste in many of our mouths, including not just church discipline, but the way you are disciplined as a child. Inappropriately, abusively. And so now anytime you hear the word discipline, you start to cringe at the thought of somebody rebuking you. Because you associate that with physical pain, heart pain, language, like hearing things about yourself that you should never ever hear. And so in the name of the Lord Jesus is a key part of church discipline. In other words, we're coming with the authority of Christ. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18? I'm with you. I'm with you. In other words, I don't stand for sin. Okay, then not just in the name of the Lord Jesus, but also what? With the with my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, right? Like it's not just in the name, but also in the power of the Lord Jesus. In verse 5, this is crazy. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. All right. Is anyone else like, como se dice, right? Like, If the world was reading this, they would say, hold on, hold on a second, Mark. But you said that God is love. And I'm reading a text about the handlings in the church. And Paul, like one of those dudes you guys really bank on, he says to deliver someone to Satan. How is that loving, Mark? This isn't the first time. Okay, next slide. Check this out. This happens in 1 Timothy. This charge, Paul tells Timothy, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may rage war, uh, the good warfare, uh, that you may wage, rather, the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, unrepentant sin, among whom uh, are Hymenus, okay, and Alexander, look at this, whom I have handed over to where? To Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Both contexts say in handing them over to Satan that there is actually going to prayerfully be a good outcome. Well, how does that work? Remember what happened to Job? It's certainly a good Old Testament example. Okay? God, as it were, in so many words, hands his servant Job over to Satan. Uh, what Satan could do in the flesh, he could not do to uh, the soul of Job, and the outcome is what? Come on, what's the outcome in Job's life? Outside of horrific physical uh, tragedy, what happens to him as a follower of God? Like it, it, it quickens him, it, it, it sanctifies him, it grows him, the whole process. Now Ephesians calls Satan the ruler, the prince of the air, of the world. And so when we hand someone over to Satan... We are saying that now they are out of the body and in the world. And the world is where for a short period of time Satan rules and reigns under the authority of Christ. Are we all together? Satan only has authority because God's given it to him. Do we agree? Okay. Satan only has authority because God's given it to him. If not, then God's not sovereign. Okay. But for a brief period of time, Paul says, hand them over to Satan. And the hope is in doing that, and doing that, maybe, maybe prayerfully, 
they will realize, they will realize grace and mercy and the relationships that they had. Maybe they will get so low in the overwhelming amount of their sin that all of a sudden they'll see that they can be redeemed again from the pit, that they, like the prodigal, can run back, right? Uh, this is many of your testimonies. Uh, it took, we could say even, unfortunately, you reaching the depth of yourself, being completely and living completely for the things that Satan uh, is pleased by, for you to realize the blessing that you had in the church. So Paul says, let him go. And now we see why. This is strong language. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Look at this. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? All right. Now, I, I, called, I called like some good friends of mine. And I, thankfully, I have a good friend that's a baker. Okay. And I'm not a baker of bread. Anyone, anyone here like a consistent baker of bread? Okay. All right. Beautiful. Um, <laughs> we're clearly a baking community. Okay. Um, now, I want to explain what leaven is. But to fully understand it, like I called my baker friend. and I was like, look, explain to me all the intricacies. Because the text says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And, and so I'm curious. Well, this is a dough. I wish I could like toss it up like a pizza or something. You know what I'm saying? My mom actually made this, so it's, it's not just dough. It's special dough, okay, um, <laughs> made by my mother. Um, and what happens is in, in ancient uh, Judaism, even in Egypt, okay, they would cut a piece of the dough off, okay? They would take that little piece of dough that they had cut off, and they would put it in some water, now, this cup actually is four-year-old leaven that my baker friend gave me today, okay? So what happens is you take that little piece of leaven, okay, and you put it in some water. And what starts to happen is the microorganisms, as my baker friend described, start to go to work. In fact, as he was describing, like, how living bread is, like, it kind of freaked me out a little bit, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, well, that it kind of explains... Uh, well, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just, right? You have a little bit too much pizza, you know? Like, man, like, okay. Anyway, anyway, listen. So what happens, what happens, okay? So you're like, what, what's happening? I don't know, okay? You cut off that leaven, you put it away, and then the next day, listen, the next day you take that lump, and you put it with the rest of the dough, and then that little piece of leaven, all the microorganisms of it, find its way, permeate its way into the rest of the dough. And what happens is it, it doesn't just cause the bread to rise uh, at a quicker pace. It causes it to, it affects its taste, it affects how, how it looks. Okay, so uh, my baker friends, like he's, he's holds, he's holds on 11 for four years and just keeps it fresh and keeps it fresh because as a good baker, you take that piece and you add it to the leaven. So do you understand now what Paul's saying? One gossiper is all it takes. 
one. One adulterer. One unrepentant blasphemer. One unrepentant addict. All it takes is one. And if that one unrepentant is allowed not just to exist in the body, but to, as it were, thrive in the body, participate in the body, go unchallenged in the body, never walk through a process of a church discipline. If that person, just like Levin, is able to do that, guess what? The microorganisms of that sin or of that person will find its way and potentially destroy the church. I, I mentioned a gossip earlier. That's one of the things we're most passionate about here in the scheme of everything because we want people to be able to come in and, and share their hurts, pains, sins. One gossiper is all it takes to tell everyone else that they can't be real here. Like, that's a phenomenal example. But there's deeper roots in the leaven, okay? Check out this next passage. This is insane and so beautiful. He says, cleanse out the old leaven. Get rid of it. That you may be, this is a cool phrase, what? Come on, what? A new lump. That's your new tap, okay? There you go, everybody. Right? Okay? Have you ever called a brother in Christ a new lump? Right? Okay? <laughs> Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, what? Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So I read this passage and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's right. That's right. The role that leavened bread played at the Passover in Exodus 12, huge. Huge, huge. Can I show you guys? Check this out, okay? Uh, Exodus 12. Okay, so uh, the, the 10th plague has just come in. Firstborn in Egypt have, di- has, have died. Here's what happens in verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, right? Like, hey, just get out of here. Like, we don't want any more of our people to die. For They said, we shall all be dead. Look at this. So the people took their dough, what? Before it was what? And in fact, if you look earlier in this passage, God had actually commanded them not to take the leaven. Why? Because it was a new day. It was a new day. They brought that old leaven with them. Guess what? That would be a remnant of their time in Egypt. But now it's time to celebrate the new day. Now it's time for you and I to celebrate being a new creation. Anything that deters our growing in sanctification after the person of Christ as a new creation must be with love and grace dealt with in the body of Christ. Are we together? Anything that deters, that takes away, that distracts from us being a new lump, a new creation, must be dealt with. Paul's not turning his back. Is it hard? Yes. Is the process lengthy? Yes. Is it painful at times? Yes. Uh, Do you at times, even though you, you don't want to at all, lose relationships? Yes. Is it messy? Yes. But is us being a new creation worth fighting for, church? Is that new believer that comes to Christ and then sees tremendous dysfunction in the body of Christ, isn't it worth it to fight the right battles in the right war? We're a new lump. 
Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. A new opportunity for us to grow. Let us then, verse 8, therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, because we're new, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's time now for us to celebrate, not leaving Egypt, but because of Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. Our sin has been dealt with. And so he says in verse 9 to clarify, and here's where all of this starts to come home for us. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, which at first glance you're like, whoa, 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 that means none of us have friends. <laughs> right? You know, like you're looking down your row and you're like, yeah, that pretty much covers it, right? Like, okay. And his first letter was the letter that he wrote before 1 Corinthians, so we don't have that letter. But he's already written one letter. We told that, a total of four letters he writes to Corinth. But they got that confused. He said don't associate, okay, with the sexually immoral. And apparently the, the church in Corinth misinterpreted that. Okay, here's the proof. Not at all meaning, he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Right, like... If you want to go against the world about their worldliness, you're going to have to go to a different galaxy, right? You're going to have to set up camp by 1-800-YOSELF on the moon, okay? Because that's the only place that you're not going to find immorality. He's saying, that's not what I said. You guys hear the old adage in the church all the time, how can we be in the world and not of the world? Is it possible? Is it possible? That in our handlings of sin, it would be one of the greatest testimonies to the world around us. And yet it's the one thing that we fear the most in how they'll respond. I don't know, we should kind of, we should go light on this. Maybe we should, maybe we should, I don't know, maybe we should cower back. Maybe we should just kind of let this one slide by because we don't want anyone in the world to. But you know how many of families, even in this community that I'm around, that have a lack of discipline. You know what those kids long for? You know what they long for? Discipline and structure. Because both those things, when done in love and grace, communicate, communicate depth of relationship. So is it possible in not walking through the stages of Matthew 18 or getting to times where 1 Corinthians 5 play out in the hopes of a brother repenting and turning around, that we're robbing the world of seeing the blessing of following Christ in community. That listen, those people love and care so much that they're willing to have the hard conversation. Is it possible that we're robbing the world of that? I think that's what Paul's saying here. I, I, you, you misinterpreted, okay? But now he says in verse 11, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears that. Verse 12, look at this. For what have I to do with judging others? Okay? Uh, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge, he says? This is what I was teaching earlier on judgment, right? In our specific example, it's those inside the church that Paul uh, is to go out to. God judges those outside. Here's what he says. Purge the evil person from among you. 
because of the beauty of verse 11. If we got rid of all that, we wouldn't even have anyone to eat with. Purge then the evil person from among you. I think there's four responses for you and I from this. Four. Two will not statements, two will statements. Let's start with our first response. We will not go on a witch hunt. And some of you are like, phew, you know, like, man, that's good, you know. You, like, look down at your phone and one of the pastors had already texted you, you know, just, they just said, what's up? You know, you got, some of you got, got a text from Pastor Lonnie, right? Like, oh, my goodness, they're acting quick on this, right? Like, not going to go on a witch hunt. Nothing changes from before in this body. Most things get dealt with on the discipleship level, on the lot family level, interpersonally. Uh, we're not now all of a sudden, you know, going to, you know, take the, the fire of how Paul deals with Corinth or how Jesus describes in Matthew, Matthew 18 and all of a sudden, no. Not going on a witch hunt. Number two, look at this. We will not, we will not be tolerant, though, of unrepentant sin in the body of Christ. The key in this whole text is unrepentant sin. Repetitive, consistent, life and heart takeover sin. I would hope that you would see that as a blessing. That this community will not stand back and watch our brothers and sisters struggle, battle consistently, say they're repentant, but really just apologizing, and then going right back to their sin. I would hope, I would long for you to desire to be a part of a body that deals with unrepentant sin and love, grace, mercy. And I'm just saying from the four elders in this body, we will deal with it. Have there been times where we've missed stuff? Yes. Will there be times in the future? Yes. Will we need God's grace and the direction of the Spirit and all these things? Yes. Will you need it? Yes. Because the reality is, like all of you, all of us together, are on the forefront of these conversations. And that's why, quite honestly, some of you are fearful of getting too far in relationally. You're like, man, if, if, if I get up in a lot family, those people are going to find out about my unrepentant sin. And I don't want nobody to call me out. Listen, you're missing the blessing of being trained in Christ. The third thing, we will continue to walk with one another in the battle against the flesh. Arm in arm. Care. Compassion. Interested when someone, uh, we, can, we can sense distance. Desirous of more when we watch a brother or sister or a marriage falling away or, or, or de de delving into temptation. Listen, this is why community is so valuable, my friends. It's why in, in this community we call them lot families. A bunch of people as a family 
walking through life together. Is it beautiful? Yes. Is it messy? Yes. Is it hard? Yes. But oh my goodness, the blessing that the world needs to see who's coming from an errant, degraded family uh, structure and system, they get to see a bunch of people, in spite of all of their battle with the flesh, walk together towards Christ. And finally, and most significantly, we will continue to take sin seriously. Here's what I think happens. Because God has taken sin seriously, now we don't have to. Mark, like if we take sin too serious, then we become legalists. When did holiness become legalism? When did the pursuit of the character of God become legalistic? I'll tell you when. It's when words like should shrouded it. It's when grace and mercy weren't embraced. That's when. And don't you in your own heart, you look at this and you're like, yeah, yeah, Mark, the moment I see statements like that, I instantly feel burdened with legalism. But that's not the gospel. There is no shape, no form, no facet of the gospel in this statement that should cause shame, that should cause us to to run away in cowardice. It's people's inability to deal with this statement that has created legalism. Please hear that. They didn't know what to do with the battle, and so they created more rules and more structure to try to control it. Instead of submitting. Well, I have a a powerful statement for you, my friends, tonight. God has taken sin very serious. Are you guys with me? He's taken sin so serious that he sacrificed his son. That's how serious he took sin. So what in the world then would cause any of us to take that for granted? What in the world then would say, yeah, yeah, you know, God, I know you've taken sin seriously, but now, woo, we can, we can take the pedal off. No, Paul says, shall we go on sinning so grace may increase by no means? Our God, Savior, and King took sin so serious that he sacrificed his son so that now we, under the freedom of Christ, can take sin serious. for the heaviness of it, for the weight of it, for the battle of it, to lead us to Christ. Because every single day that you and I sit in that battle, it is one more piece of evidence that we need Jesus, right? It's one more piece of evidence. The battle rages on, my flesh versus the spirit, the old man versus the new man. God, am I taking sin too serious or not? I don't know. But what I do know is, what it is, is once again, I'm reminded that I need you, that I'm nothing without you, that with, without you as my king and ruler and lord and savior, that I'll, I'll squander it away. I'll be the prodigal. I'll run away from you and I won't run back. No, God took sin serious. He sacrificed his son so that you and I could take it serious. So that we could cherish the arms of Christ. 
so that we could see tonight the unrepentant sin in our life and see in Christ an opportunity to turn from it, to repent of it, to open our arms again to the arms that are already opened from a good father. You see, tonight isn't in as much for us to walk away and understand church discipline. Tonight for you and I, it's an opportunity to repent of our sin. So these tables tonight are tables for those whose life has been bought by the blood of Christ. For those who have said in strength and wisdom that can only come from Christ, who said and believed the broken body of Jesus means something. That God dealt seriously with sin so that we can too. And then on that night, he took the cup after breaking the bread, and he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant. I've dealt serious with sin so much that my, my own son will bleed out. He says, take and drink in remembrance of me. I think some of you tonight, God is speaking very clearly to. You've taken sin for granted. You find yourself in systematic, unrepentant, hamster wheel sin. Take time in that seat of yours and cry out for the grace and mercy of our good God. And then, church, listen. In response with joy of forgiveness, you come and you share in this meal and you celebrate the victory you have in Christ. It could have been this relationship in Corinth and it certainly tonight can be yours. So come and respond to the invitation of our Christ to repent and be saved.